Have you ever thought about safety? You see, it's a, a pretty important thing. I think we should think about it now and again. But you know, when I was a kid, and I'm sure when you were kids or you had kids, uh, I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and you and my mum had a station wagon, and you could pack as many people in that station wagon as you wanted to, and you didn't have to wear a seatbelt, and you could drive around, and nobody would blink an eye at you, would they? they, they it's just normal. I mean, I remember coming to America when I, I was seven, seeing people ride in the back of pickup trucks and thinking it was the coolest thing ever. So my dad had a friend that had a pickup truck, and I'm like, can I ride in the back? I'm like, that's cool. You better not do that now. You better not do that now. You're going to jail. But sometimes it, 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 it makes you wonder about some of the things we put our trust in. For example, uh, the helmet went skydiving. Jerry Seinfeld did a skit on the helmet while skydiving. And he says, what is the point of the helmet in, the, in skydiving? I mean, can you kind of make it? You know, you jump out of a plane that shot open, the helmet is now wearing you for protection. Later on, the helmet is talking to the other helmet saying, it's a good thing he was there or else I would have hit the ground directly. Never ever jump out of a plane unless you've got a human being strapped underneath you. That's the basics of safety. You know, sometimes I, I think we put our trust in things that aren't worth putting our trust in. What, what if we found out the things that we've placed our trust in were the wrong things? What if we found out the very things we placed our trust in are not trustworthy and safe and secure? See, what if we found out the very place we've placed our trust is not a place of trust, but a place of danger? That would change everything, wouldn't it? You see, Naomi urges her two daughters-in-law to stay in Moab, to return to their parents, to remarry. Ruth and Opah had a tough choice to make. We talked about it last week. Then... They had to answer which situation gave them security, which situation gave them a future. See, Orpah placed her trust and security in Moab, the familiar, the familiar gods, the familiar people. That's where she found her safety. She took what seemed to be the safe and smart path, especially from the world's view, the familiar. You see, Ruth, on the other hand, placed her trust in Yahweh God. She aligned herself with Naomi, Naomi's people, and Naomi's God. She, she found a security under the wings of God. In one sense, this seems like utter foolishness. I mean, she didn't even really know this God. What was she thinking? She has no hope or future in Israel. 
Her people were hated in Israel. But as risky, foolish, and dangerous as it seems, there is no safer place than seeking refuge under the sovereign care of God Almighty. You see, what is foolish is trusting in homes, families, spouses, children to give you safety and happiness. That's foolish. If that's where you're getting your happiness from, you're looking in the wrong place. I'm not saying they're not good things that God's gave us, but if that's where we're rooting to get our happiness from, they are bad things. They're not going to satisfy. See, Ruth Orpah Ruth and Naomi learned about the insecurities of putting their trust and faith in a human's life, didn't they? All the men died. They left in a culture that they had nobody to take care of them because they'd put their trust in a person. See, it seems like Orpah hasn't learned this lesson. But Ruth, on the other hand, has. She's going to try something different. See, we don't know what happened to Orpah. I hope it turned out good for her. But we don't know. The book's not about Orpah. It's about Ruth and Naomi. And how God is going to use them to save us. See, she took a radical and risky leap of faith in trusting her future to Yahweh God. A God she did not know much about. And perhaps to some, she was going down a seemingly foolish and dangerous path. Remember, when she left, she had to walk 75 miles. Two women walking 75 miles. Probably not a good thing in these days. Probably not a safe thing in these days. Probably not a safe thing today either. But it was definitely not a safe thing then. But they were under God's protection, not even knowing they were under God's protection. See, Ruth decides to trust in Yahweh and align herself with Naomi. Naomi's people and her God. So today we're going to look at how life turned out for Ruth as we... As she took this seemingly risky path. Today we're in week three of the series called Fields of Grace. A study in the book of Ruth. And today's lesson is called The Wings of God. See we're going to be in chapter two of Ruth. But before we get started I want to to take a look at the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I love catechisms. I love creeds. I love all the old stuff. And and. In, in the Westminster Catechism, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? It's a pretty good question, really, isn't it? What is the chief end of man? And, and the first time I, I read this, this was not in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, actually. It was in Desiring God by John Piper, because... Uh, a Life of Christian Hedonism is the title of the book. It was saying to find joy in Christ and Christ alone is the ultimate guide. It's, it's one of my favorite books by John Piper. And 
it was one of my first books I ever read as a Christian. So it has meaning. And this, this was in it. What is the chief end of man? What is? What are we supposed to be? What are we supposed to do? And, and the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I love that because it's not just glorify Him. It's to enjoy Him and everything that He gives you to enjoy Him. Enjoy his creation. That is our chief end. To put our trust in a God that wants us to glorify him. And to find pleasure in him forever. So, we're going to go back to to chapter Uh, 1, verse 21. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. See, at the end of chapter 1, there is a ray of hope. That ray of hope is standing four feet tall in the field of Bethlehem. So they just arrived. It would have been in spring. During about the month of May, on the calendar as we know it, the beginning of the barley harvest. The barley harvest was the first crop to come to be able to be picked. It was the first crop to be picked. Uh, Barley and flax, actually, were the first two crops of them days that that, that would come to harvest in the spring. And the barley has ready, it's ready to, to go with... Uh, your little whacker whacker and and whack it down and pick it up. You see, and like I said last week, God is restocking this the breadbasket of Bethlehem. He's providing food for Bethlehem. So just when you thought there was no hope for Ruth and Naomi, the author gives us this wonderful ray of hope, doesn't he? At the, at the end of the first chapter, there was food at last in the house of bread as God was blessing and providing for his people. Did you ever watch the TV show 24? I, I, it was one of my favorite, favorite we had Kiefer Sutherland. Uh, I know my mother-in-law had the hots for Kiefer Sutherland, so she watched every single episode of him. Uh, of it, uh, and at the end of that show, do you remember what happened? You got the dun 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 at that little thing, and it would all the screen would have little shots of what was going on all over the place, right? The, the split screen everywhere, like loads of split screens showing you what's going on. And and you're probably thinking, why is he talking about twenty four? You know. And you'd know what was going on in, in, in the show because it was supposed to be going over a 24-hour period, which there's no way all of that could have happened in 24 hours. But, but we like fantasy TV, so we watch it anyway. Or we think the guy who plays the main character is hot. Uh, <laughs> you see, ancient storytellers didn't have the benefit of a highlighter or italics or bold print. Or underlining. They didn't do that. They didn't have an explanation point to put at the end of something. And so this explains why in biblical narratives, especially in the Old Testament, 
ones. Sometimes it tells you something that you could learn later in any case from the story itself. If you continued reading, you'd find out what was going on. But, but sometimes the authors almost, they want you to keep an eye on this point that they're going to point out. Right now, they're going to point something out and you need to, you need to realize in the story that, that you need to keep a focus on this point. See, redundancy, at least in biblical narratives, is often repetition for the sake of emphasis. So, verse, verse 1 of chapter 2 starts, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. This is that point. They're going, the author says, this character is going to be important. You need to take stock of him now. See, the author is hinting that now, there may be a person, not just food in Bethlehem, but now there may be a relative of Naomi's husband's side who may play a big part in her ordeal. There may be actually a redeemer to redeem them. He is mentioned at the beginning of the chapter, chapter 2, as the author is setting up what is coming. So now there is not only food and provision, but there is also someone who may be able to help the family in their depravity. See, Boaz is described as a worthy man. By the way, this, this, this is also, every man should highlight that, that verse, ch- chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 1. Because he was a worthy man. This word has a lot of meaning. Such as mighty man of valor or wealth. You see, Boaz could have been a war hero, something like a knight. Or he was honorable, he was noble, he was full of integrity. He was also wealthy, as we will see later in the story. He was a man of influence and social standing in the community. This Boaz is somebody we men should look up to and want to emulate in some ways. Because he is a picture of a godly man. So if you want a picture of a godly man, Boaz. You see, all of this, the barley growing, the chance of a redeemer, everything coming together at the right time is... God's perfect timing. See, God has perfect timing. We pray and we want it now. But God's timing is perfect. He gives it when it's needed. Not when you want it. See, there's a difference. I'll say this. God God wants to supply our needs. And sometimes he's very generous and he gives us some of our wants. But is our wants aren't important to God. He does that because of his grace, love, and mercy, not because we deserve it. See, 
So this is God's perfect timing. You've got to realize that everything happens in God's timing and not ours. Just, fi- just think about your life. Up to now, how many of your plans happened the way you planned them? A zero. My plan, my plan in 1991, February 20th, 1991, this was my plan. I bought an open-ended ticket that was a year good. So I could go any time back to, America, to England in that year. By the way, that, that ever end of the ticket never got used. I, my plan was to spend six months with my dad to get to know him. And then I was going to spend, I was going to go to Canada because so, I had to leave the country because I could only stay six months because I had a visa that I could stay six months. I was going to go up to Canada and then come back in. So I was going to go see a bit of Canada, come back down. And I was going to tour America for six months and back up in Chicago airport and fly home. That was my plan. How do you think it worked? Okay. I came on February 20th. I met Shelley on the 28th. I moved in with her on the 15th. We got married the first time on the 16th of July. The same year. Didn't take long, did it? For God to uproot my plan. By the way, I didn't believe in God. I didn't believe in God for another nearly 13 years. So, God was moving and changing my life way before I was in the... I mean, he moved my dad in the first place. So, we go back way, 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 way. So, uh, our plans are never the same as God's plans. He knew what was good for me. I didn't. I don't miss the fact that none of that came, to, came. I would have probably got myself in a lot of trouble. I might have not made it home. But God had a different plan for me. And, and I can tell you, my whole life's been the same way. My whole life. I, see, see the, the thing about plans is when we look back, we can see how God orchestrated the things in our life. Because hindsight is twenty twenty, So we can look back and go, wow. You can say it just happened. Or you can say God ordained it and it was God's timing and it was God's thing. But it, I believe now that it was God ordaining the, what he wanted me to do to get me where he wanted to get me. To get me right here today. See, we serve a God that knows when the perfect time for everything is. He knows when the perfect timing for everything is. He puts people in your life at the right exact time. Not your time, his time. It goes on to say, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come 
to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the the clan who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, just happened to come from Bethlehem that day. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they, they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? He just happened to notice Ruth. When I want, I want you to notice her here, that Naomi and Ruth are back in Bethlehem. That's good. But they have no crops to reap or food to eat. They don't have no crops. It's not their fields. So what does Ruth do? Does she sit on her backside and wait for local government to hand her a check and go down to the local grocery store? No, that's not what Ruth does. No, Ruth asked her mother-in-law if she can, can go glean in the field. See, you see, this was the welfare system of their day. See, God had put a plan together. So that the poor, outcast widows, fatherless and foreigners could eat. He had, he had designed a way for this to, to work. But it also meant they had to what? Work. They did this in England, by the way. After I left, when you went on an employment in England, if you didn't find a job within a certain amount of time, this was the Margaret Thatcher era. era. If you didn't find a job in a certain time, guess what they did? They placed you. And guess what you got for that? When you went to work, you got your unemployment check. And they could, they could hire you for a year on your unemployment check. That's, that's how the government said, hey, you don't want to go look for a job. You're not trying hard enough to look for a job. We'll place you. And that company, I know this happened because my brother worked for a year for a company. And then they hired him after the year and, and gave him a big bonus because he was getting underpaid for a year. And uh, sent him on vacation also too. But that didn't happen. That doesn't happen a lot, and it didn't. I don't even know if this operation is still in existence. But that's how you stop lazy people. You make them go to work. Hey, you don't go to work. You don't. You don't eat. God did it. God says you don't go to work. You don't go clean the field. You're not going to eat. You're not going to eat. That was his, God made this social system. You see, here's the thing what we've got to remember. Is all the stuff that's available today from the government used to be provided from the church. They, they, they took it from us. We used to take care of the widows and orphans and people that couldn't, couldn't work. The church did. And then, and then the government took it over. And they've done a mighty fine job of it. <laughs> See, so here's Ruth, who seems to be familiar with gleaning. She says, please, Naomi, can I glean in the field where I will find favor? This is not only just a request to Naomi, but by the way, this is a prayer. 
This is a prayer to God. The God that she's going to try to build a relationship with, obviously. It's a prayer because guess what gleaning wasn't? Probably that's safe for for a young, uh, attractive woman. And I'm saying attractive because the Bible says Boaz noticed her like, noticed her. You know, it wasn't like she's young, she's probably attractive. Uh, I'm just reading between the lines in the story here because there was other people gleaning. Okay? It was probably not a safe place for her. She could have ended up in the wrong field. But she remembers she just happened to go to the right field. So you see, Ruth doesn't just sit there. She takes action. She takes action. I think we need to to be like this. We pray, but we just sit down and wait for God to move. See, Ruth is a woman of action. To show you where this is written in Leviticus 19, 9, 10, to go to... To go to glean, when you reap your harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. This meant that, by the way, they would leave a little bit around the edge and also the corners and they could only make one pass. If they dropped anything, it was to be left on the ground. So when they were chopping away, getting their crops, whatever they collected, the first run through is all they could collect. The way God put it in. I'm sure there was farmers out there that weren't doing this at the time. But, but, but this is what God put in uh, to his law. And Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 23 says, When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and for the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember what you were. You, sh- you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. See, Israelite landovers were left Gleanings for the poor, it tangibly demonstrates an internalized understanding of what the Lord their God did when they were in the Exodus. So he's telling, this is not only for the people, I'm not, this is not just for social uh, work so they can have something and eat. So we can take care of the poor. But it's also to remind you, you were once there. You see, 
God had been kind and generous with the Israelites when Pharaoh oppressed them, so they in turn should treat the less fortunate in their midst the same. So Ruth goes off to glean, and she just happens to come across Boaz's fields. In those days, there was no fences or signs, by the way, saying whose fields they belonged to. She didn't even know who Boaz was, by the way. We do because they introduced Boaz. But Ruth at that time did not know who Boaz was and what an important role he's going to play. And then Boaz just happened to come to his field that very day. And Boaz just happened to see Ruth. You see, this is divine coincidence. When the author says she happened to come to part of the field Boaz owned, that the happened is a cleaned up version of the translation. See, a more literal translation would be this. The happenstance that happened to her was. So the happenstance of the happened, it just, it, it's more literal. Have you ever said to a fellow Christian, you know, when I was doing this, it just happened that only to receive some sort of pious or, or critical rebuke, but nothing just happens, does it? If you're, a, if you're a firm believer in Christ, nothing just happens in your life. It's all orchestrated by God. See, at that point we feel unspiritual because we're like, oh yeah, really, everything happens because God wants it to happen. You see, but the author of Ruth is comfortable writing in this way. You see, we believers know that there is no happenstance. And so does the author of Ruth, which is why, in this instance, a literal translation helps us enjoy the narrative the way it was intended to be. See, he wants us, again, to sit up and take notice of what's happening. See, all these, they like highlighted parts where they want you to notice what's happening in the story. See, just like Ruth in, in this story, there are many things in our lives that, that just seem to happen to us by happenstance. Things that we may never understand. See, not all of it is we're going to understand in our lifetime. Sometimes we meet somebody and we don't know why we met them. We might never know why we met them. From Ruth's point of view, things do just happen though. She has no idea about the significance of gleaning in Boaz's field. She does not even know who Boaz is at the time. She certainly does not know where God is prevent, providentially leading her. See, the providence of God, as John Flavel clearly put it, it's like Hebrew words. They can only be read properly backwards. See, we can only see the providence of God by looking back. The author here is showing us that our lives are being played out on a split screen. And even in the midst of our confusion and the happenstances and surprises of life, God is still sovereign. God still reigns every inch of the universe in which we live. 
God's hand is on every moment of every moment of our life. It might not seem like it sometimes, but he is in control of everything. So we, we know that nothing just happens. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground without our God knowing it, does it? Matthew 29, uh, uh, 10, 29 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them fall to the ground apart from your father. And, and Romans eight twenty eight says, And we know that for those who love God, so if you're a Christian, that's what your statement is, that you love God. All things, all things, good, bad, ugly, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is why we can be quiet and confident, not because we know exactly what God is, is doing in this unpredictable world, world, but because we know that what is unpredictable to us is already predicted by him. See, Psalms 139.16 says this, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were the written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So before you were born, God has written your story. He already knows it. It's not new to him. See, that is the beauty of God. He knows all. He knows what's best for you. So he's allowed stuff to come into your life that sometimes is painful to use, to grow you, and to move you towards him. Ruth 2, 6 through 13 goes on to say, And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. It also means Ruth was a hard worker. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they have, that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young women, the, the young men, not to touch you? So you see how dangerous this could have been for, for, for Ruth. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to, to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, 
the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. See, there's an old proverb that says, if you don't live it, you don't believe it. If you don't live it, you don't believe it. This is so true. Many people nod their heads at the Bible or at the sermon as they're listening to it. And they claim to believe it. They may raise their hands for salvation and when they're worshipping, like they believe it. And they might agree and believe what Jesus says. Why then? The survey after survey report that the behavior of a Christian is no different or not much different than a non-Christian in terms of divorce rate, stealing, lying, whatever you like, put in your blank. Why is it that, that when they take surveys, that Christians don't look any different, people who profess to be Christians when they're honest, don't look any different to the rest of the world. In, 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 in 1987, George Gallup reported, there's little difference. This is going back to 1987. It's got far worse than that. There's very little difference in ethical behavior between the churched and the unchurched. There's as much pilferage and dishonesty among the church as the unchurch, and I'm afraid that applies pretty much across the board. Religion per se is not really life-changing. And then in 1991, William Hendricks, writing in Christian Today, stated this. The Princeton Religion Research Center has measured the impact of religion on a day-to-day work on today-day work, comparing the church with the unchurched on a wide range of behaviors, like pilfering supplies, stealing from the company, overstating qualifications on a resume, lying, calling in sick when not sick, lying and stealing, and overstating tax deductions, lying, stealing, and cheating, The center finds little difference in the ethical views and behaviors of the churched and the unchurched. What differences there are are not significant or are marginal significant. And finally, in 2004, George Barner research stated this. People's faith does not make as much of a difference as might be expected especially among non-evangelical born-again Christians, that type of faith, their faith, their type of faith and belief that is being professed and practiced by many people who claim to be Christian is often superficial, non-impacting, and quite frankly, not real. See, again, the old proverb is worth repeating. If you don't live it, you don't believe it. If you don't leave this place and live what you believe, when you interact with other people, you don't believe it. See, Boaz obviously believed in an all-powerful God, didn't he? 
He believed that God was going to look after Ruth because of what he heard Ruth had done. Why do we struggle with that so much? See, this is where we see the godly character of Ruth and Boaz. They don't just say they have faith in God. They live it. I mean, we're talking about, we would call her today, Ruth, a baby Christian. If, if Ruth was, Ruth is at this point a baby Christian. She's acting more like a Christian than, than most of us act. And you know what I love about this passage is that it shows us how God answers prayers. You see, have you ever noticed that God always sends a person to answer the prayers we pray? Most of the time, when you pray, somebody comes into your life to answer that prayer. But you might not even see it sometimes, but most of the time, it's because somebody else does something. I mean, prayer is so important. Asking God to heal people, doing all that. But sometimes you'll hear a prayer request for, for somebody is desperate. They need a call. They need some money to pay a bill. And God sends the right person around. I just heard a story uh, this last week. But the person couldn't make rent. It was seven years ago. They couldn't make rent. And, and uh, it was my barber. And she'd gone to barber school with this other, other woman. And, and do you know what happened? The other woman was a Christian. She never told the person that she was desperate because she's a very proud person, by the way. So she wouldn't tell anybody that she had no gas, no electric, and she couldn't pay her rent. And suddenly a check shows up in the mail in a card. And all the card says is, is church people, the pastor's probably not going to like this, and I'm the pastor. We usually send this money to our, give this money to our church, but we felt that you needed it more than them, and they sent the exact amount what her rent was in a check. And by the way, she just stopped going to church like three or four months before that, and God shows up. He uses people to answer people's prayers. And sometimes we don't even know why we're doing it. In this story... For Naomi, who did, how did God answer that prayer? Ruth. For Ruth, God sent Boaz. For me and you, guess what? God sent Jesus. God always sends someone. God loves to allow us to be part of his great and glorious plan. See, it's always and will always be, it, it will always blow me away that God would use somebody like me, to bring him glory. I don't understand it. I'm like, of all people, and you should feel the same way. Why would you use such a person like me? See, Ruth here had to admit that she is helpless and needs protection. Ruth is saying when she sought out refuge under God's wings that she is helpless, but you are God, save me. See, we need to see and, and learn from Ruth. 
I want you to understand when in verse 12 it says, The Lord repay you for what you have done. That, as we read, that we might think that if we do good, good is done to me. But that is karma. And Christians don't believe in karma. Or, or we might read that and think of God as a boss. And if I work really hard for him, he'll repay me. No, that would be a job. See, we don't work for God like that. This is more like saying, God, take care of me and show your grace and your power. I will show this in a couple of texts from the Psalms. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Psalms 25, 11. And Psalms 30, 33, 18 through 21 says, Behold the eyes of the Lord in, in, on the... On those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. And Psalms 143.11, For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life in your righteousness. Bring my soul out of trouble. So when we seek our refuge, we need to seek it under God's wings. We are like a baby eaglet. And God is this big eagle that is protecting its young. So let's seek our protection under the wings of God. See, are you seeking your comfort and security under God's wings? And saying to him, God, I am a sinner. I can't save myself. I'm helpless. See, I want us to find our refuge in him. As, as, as sinners, that's where we need to turn. We so easily turn to all of the things first and then we turn to God to, to help us. This is the point that we need to turn to him, not away from him. And then verse 14 through 16 says, And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsels in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some leftover. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young man saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So now he's not only letting her do what was legitimate, the legal thing, the demands of God. He's now going, hey just accidentally drop some extra on the ground. Don't punish her if she goes too far and gleans in the, in, in the inappropriate areas that she's not supposed to glean. Let her, let her glean so she can, she can go home full. You see, this is grace at the bottom of the bow. Ruth at this point had no hope. No hope. 
before she just gets back. This is, this is the most beautiful story in the Old Testament. It, 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 I, I love this book because it's the whole gospel in four verses, in four chapters. Everything about Ruth. When I, I've, told, I've told people that, they go, Ruth. And they look at me because it, it's a book about a love story. It's a, actually, actually, this book is read in non-Christian schools as, as just beautiful literature, by the way. But uh, this, is, this is why, because it shows the love of Christ. And, and, and she is finding grace among foreigners. If anybody ever said, well, the, the, God only attended a certain people to be part of his kingdom. No, he didn't. He used foreigners all the time. He always had a plan for the Gentiles of this world. And it shows right here as he's, he, he's providing for, for a roof. Hebrews 11, 32, 40 says, God, uh, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell Gideon, of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephiah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who though faith conquered, uh, uh, through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, but foreign, put foreign armies to flight. Women, women, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others offered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed without the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, desolate, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All of these, though, commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. See, we've got to remember that God is good and gracious. Okay? God is good and gracious when he provides, like he did for Ruth. But he's also good and gracious if you come home. He's good and gracious if you come home with a 30-pound sack of grain, which we'll talk about next week. And he's also good if you come home after a beating. That's what that text says. He's good all the time. God is still good, still loving. He is still good. On the good days and on the bad days. When you're being knocked down, when you're being lifted up. When he's providing abundantly, when he's letting you suffer. He's still God, he's still good. Daniel 3, 16 through 18 says, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego answered, And said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, 
We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, firing furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And this is the key verse. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They're saying, doesn't matter what you do. Yes, we believe that God can save, and he actually did because we've read the story. But they were prepared when they went in the fiery furnace to burn for what they believed. And there's been many saints since that did burn for what they believed. You see, God is still God. No matter what is going on in your life. He never stops being God. We need to trust Him more. Rely on Him more. So this week, I want you to reread the scripture that we just read uh, Ruth 2, 1 through 16. Then this week, I want you to take notice of how every day God shows up, even in the small stuff. Because I really believe that, that God shows up even in the small stuff. It's just sometimes we don't look at that. A.W. Tozer, in his little book called Knowledge of the Holy Spirit, said this, To believe actively that our Heavenly Father consistently spreads, us, uh, spreads around us providential circumstances that work for our pre- present good, and our everlasting well-being brings to the soul a, ver- a veritability benediction. Most of us go through life praying a little, planning a little, jockeying for position, hoping, but never being quite certain of anything, and always securely, secretly afraid that we will miss the way. This is a tragic waste of truth and never gives rest to the heart. There is a better way. God has changed himself with full responsibility for our eternal happiness and stands ready to take over the management of our lives the moment we turn in faith to him. So then, as you see where God is moving in the small things, stop, pray, and thank him. I like what Bob shared at the end, the end of uh, men's prayer breakfast yesterday. That at the end of the day, he makes a note to 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 uh, he starts his day with with prayer for the day, and then he ends it with thanking God. But but you see, we sometimes don't realize that we've got lots we can thank God for, do we? And and it's the small stuff. Sometimes God's allowed something to happen, but we could find a reason for thanksgiving in that. Maybe your car broke down. But, but you have the ability to pay for it. Somebody else doesn't. You know, things happen in your life that, that you, go, you get mad and, and get angry. But then, if you look at it, it's not that big of a deal. You can always find somebody that has got it, that's got it worse than you. And then also read... The rest of chapter 2, 17 through 23. And join us next week for, from famine to fullness. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank